Neil Simon is the Norman Rockwell of playwrights. Now that's the kind of glib comparison a Neil Simon character would use as a snappy audience-appeasing put-down directed at a Neil Simon-esque playwright in one of Neil Simon's plays, if that character was trying to be sophisticated and knowing. But just as that kind of glib insult reveals itself to not really be an insult once one reevaluates the cultural importance of Norman Rockwell, so does the Neil Simon-like playwright within the Neil Simon play resolve into the actual Norman Rockwell-like Neil Simon, who is truly an American icon, revealing the glib character to be more sophisticated than we knew at first in such a way that we can congratulate ourselves for having known it all along. We learn to love that glib character who insulted both Norman Rockwell and Neil Simon because we imagine we are smart enough to get the joke behind the joke and still make it home to be yelled at by our mothers to wash up before dinner. Neil Simon belongs in the all-time American Hall of Fame for the following reasons. Barefoot in the Park, The Odd Couple, Brighton Beach Memoirs, and The Goodbye Girl. He did other amazing things as well, but these are enough. The humor in these pieces is gentle, smart and self-aware, never brittle. Woody Allen's humor was more incisive, sure, but immature. A lot of Neil Simon's contemporaries were trying to shock or injure, but Neil painted us like Norman Rockwell did in revealing caricatures that became part and parcel of how we saw ourselves. Honestly, this is just what Matthew Broderick does too. He portrays himself as we imagine ourselves, occasionally looking dead at the camera to shrug and say, ain't life a doozy? He knows it's a farce, everything, but he goes along with it for fun, and that is so freaking appealing. Throughout the 80s and the 90s, I would have eagerly spent $10 to watch Matthew Broderick open a jar of pickles, no question. He and John Cusack both spent a decade with their shoes untied and their sweatshirts on backwards like a couple of four-year-olds, and honestly, I think that's a big part of why Generation X never learned to hold down a job. So it's no surprise the Neil Simon play, Bluxy Blues, co-starring Matthew Broderick, was a huge hit on Broadway and won the Tony Award for Best Play. And it's further to be expected that the play was made into a film, and that famous director and American legend Mike Nichols would direct it. And the film arrived right in the perfect American moment where the powers of Broadway and Neil Simon and Mike Nichols and Matthew Broderick and an entire audience of still living World War II veterans and their wives and friends and cultural Judeophilia and a critical reassessment of Norman Rockwell all combined with saxophone and reckless folly to produce a masterpiece. But alas, no. What did result from all this amassed firepower was a strangely tone-deaf and ineffectual little smoke bomb. I mean, no one was injured by it, it wasn't a flop by any means. People liked it. I liked it a lot. But remember, I was 19 years old sitting there in the theater clutching a World War II vintage jar of pickles. This movie landed right in my blind spot in 1988. A boot camp movie where a bunch of Brooklyn Jewish boys train for World War II but are never deployed to it because the war in Japan is over before they can get there? God, it was my Debbie Does Dallas. But watching it again, it was deflating. I mean, sort of like re-watching Debbie Does Dallas. Look, it has a lot going for it. I can't let my faded youth get in the way here. Neil Simon's progressive Jewish artsy type protagonist is Private Eugene Morris Jerome. Broderick. Training in Biloxi under the nutty nutty Sergeant Merwin Toomey played psychopathically by the supremely weird Christopher Walken. I don't mean that Walken plays Toomey as a psychopath, although he does that too. I mean that his acting is psychopathic. 
we had a light comedy going on here and all of a sudden the deer hunter comes into frame and then he stays there throughout the entire movie while the light comedy keeps burbling along trying to stay on course but oh here comes the deer hunter again it's insane the film is set up as a series of vignettes with very little in the way of rising action or tension occasionally private Wykowski starts a fight or private epstein has a philosophical reverie that is both appealingly smart and also frustratingly stubborn in light of the ongoing setting of a boot camp in the deep south and there's this heart-wrenching subplot about the humiliating penalties for homosexuality in the 1940s u.s army that was daring for a mainstream movie in 1988 there are some broad stereotypes of polish americans and there's a hooker with a heart of gold but there are a lot of boot camp movies and this isn't really in the top rank We're not ever really scared. We never feel like these guys will end up soldiers. None of it feels real. The stakes are all confined. In turning it from a play to a movie, they replaced the pitch-perfect William Sadler with Walken in the role of Toomey, turning a story about Brooklyn Jews learning to soldier under a hard-ass Southerner into a bizarre conflict between some New York guys who are all sweating it out in the South. (sighs) Tell me, Jerome, if a piss-drunk sergeant has a loaded forty-five pointed at the head of a piece of dung that the piss-drunk sergeant hates and despises, how would you describe the situation? Today on Friendly Fire, the 1988 film directed by Mike Nichols, Biloxi Blues. Welcome to Friendly Fire. The Army has its logic, but this war movie podcast has its own. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Is this the most 1988 movie we will ever see? It's so 1988. <laughs> I really wanted to watch this movie. I remember putting it on the list. I remember when we said we were going to watch it this week, feeling very excited about it. And then almost immediately getting into it, I realized that I had a... I definitely had some hazy recollection, some some like very fond memory of watching this in 1988, and, <laughs> and, it, and it didn't carry. It didn't you can't carry go all, back, John. <laughs> you really can't. You really can't. It was like going back to my childhood playground and seeing how rusty all the stuff was. That's kind of an interesting <laughs> meta review because this film is all about nostalgia, and if you're able to feel it, for this moment, then I think the film works for you. But your own personal nostalgia with when you saw this film for the first time, that didn't even hang together. It, it, it's very meta in that exact way, right? In 19, I mean, this movie came out post Platoon. <laughs> so we're living in a world, we're living in a war movie world where Platoon has happened. And yet this guy trots out onto the stage with his straw boater and his, uh, his like, uh, little rattan cane and starts doing this like war movie soft shoe (laughs) whoa yeah yeah yeah. because this movie was was written by a a world war ii veteran and this is their sort of they're they're still trying to have this like war is good and we were fun and that was the times and we beat the nazis and la da 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 and it's like wow what are we what, it, and that, that that 1988 that world those two worlds still coexisted yeah 
I was expecting stripes and I got the sandlot from this film. <laughs> like, this is the sandlot of war films. Yeah. I, I, I fired this movie up going, you know, it's funny. You don't think of Matthew Broderick as being really a war film guy, but here, here he is, the star of the second war film, and then... When I finished the the movie, I was like, no, not a war film guy at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's like undoes glory. It was it was hard. It was hard for me to recall a time when the gentle humor of Neil Simon elicited belly laughs in me. And I remember, <laughs> I, re- I remember, you know, those little arch moments where Matthew Broderick raises an eyebrow or something and at the time just like rolling and uh and now uh, the humor just went it just went past like um like dry toast i mean when i was in high school i feel like brighton beach memoirs was like a close at hand reference that i made with friends of mine you know like we would talk about the golden palace of the himalayas all the teachers you'd hang out with in the summer <laughs> but they really loved that one <laughs> sure <laughs> Down at well, the, YMCA. the kids my age didn't want anything <laughs> no. to do with me <laughs> you you were volunteering at the home right <laughs> you know that moment when you see your teacher at the grocery store and most kids are just their mind is blown that their right. teacher is anywhere outside of school. I say, uh, hey, by the way, uh, can we exchange uh, phone numbers? They're asking you how they choose a ripe avocado. <laughs> uh-huh. I have thoughts. <laughs> now, of course, that's different from a melon, which <laughs> I think. Yeah, right. And you're seven years old. <laughs> uh, I think Brighton Beach Memoirs is a better movie. Uh, you know, it's kind of the the best of the three, and the the humor is, it it doesn't rely entirely on Matthew Broderick. Um, so Brighton Beach Memoirs is you know it's an ensemble piece, and it and it, watching the movie, it's like watching a play. Yeah, but this you know this relied so heavily on so many tropes we've seen already, so there there just wasn't very much about it that felt uh, fresh or compelling or like any kind of interesting take on even and it felt like this this could be a really interesting take but it uh, but it it wasn't i would say that the one thing that stuck out to me is um the arnold epstein character is a total pacifist and i feel like so many of the jewish characters we've seen in films so far in this podcast have been really fired up about taking the fight to the nazis you know yeah and uh and like this guy gets a gun in his hand he's like i don't want to use this thing you're asking me to kill a human being i'm not into it the existential threat to the jews that the nazis posed was not enough to make this guy want to set his pacifism aside and i I don't think we've seen a character like that uh before no i agree I, I think that Neil Simon gives us an opportunity to look into the Jewish identity uh, with a lot of depth. You don't usually see a movie with two Jewish characters uh, who are having a difficult time interacting with each other because right. they come from different traditions within their own community. I thought his portrayal was interesting because, you know, you see a lot of the bullied in boot camp films who then wilt in the face of the bullying. And he remains 
confident in his opinions about everything. He is never bullied to the degree that he is either made stronger or weaker. He is he is the constant in this film in a really interesting way, and I would not have expected that to be his journey. And I think that's one of the liabilities in this film because no one really changes from <laughs> the beginning of it to the end of it. Mm-hmm. At there, the at the end, there isn't a feeling of like we've all been through this together. It was not really. I mean, Epstein is the he he's playing a, a character that is an intellectual, but also he it's he is the intellectual uh, heart of the film. In in that, if you can understand him, or understanding him requires more of out of a out of a uh, viewer than the the tone of the rest of the film suggests. You can just bubble along in the movie and be like, oh, the Polish guy is beating up on the Jewish guy. Oh, the food is bad. But then at the center, <laughs> here's this guy who who requires an awful lot of um, of empathy and kind of understanding to, to appreciate as anything other than, I'm sure there are people that watch this movie and are just like, oh, God, that Epstein guy. I wish he would get off the screen. <laughs> but he really, you know, he's the... He's the most fully realized character. Yeah. Hey, Epstein, want to read something? Huh? Read this. <laughs> John, have you seen the play of this? Not performed as a play, no. I, I wondered, because I was reading about it on Wikipedia, and it is described as being, as the, pl- the play being about the conflict between Epstein and Sergeant Toomey. And, I mean, I felt like that was a part of the story, but the... Uh, the Broderick character feels so central. The Eugene Jerome character. Yeah, so like the middle half film. of this film is without the Toomey character at all. I think. Yeah, and and I wondered if if Epstein is more more central in the play, and I mean, I I think that the the most interesting part of his presence is for Jerome to think about you know what you know, what courage means and what, what his values are when Epstein is getting, you know, is getting uh, humiliated and, and beat up on and, and he doesn't stand up for him. We get that in that journal reading scene, um, that feeling where he betrays a couple of his friends but the movie never brings that back around. We never later feel any consequences for him having um, hurt those guys' feelings. And I think you're right, Ben. I, the more the more I think about the way the movie is set up in these vignettes, <clears throat> it feels like there probably was a heart to the play in that relationship, in that in the conflict there. But the movie felt like it needed to go do the like losing your virginity scene and the Vaseline on the camera dance party, uh, fall in love for the first time scene. So, I mean, there, there was there was some Mike Nichols choices. There were some Mike Nichols um, like, let's make this a romantic comedy for for the theaters choices that probably took it out of its. Uh, took took some of the grit out and replaced it with some schmaltz. I also thought that the, I mean, like I, I love Walken, and I think there's a lot about him in this role that I like, but it it felt a little off the mark. And one thing about the play was that when it was first 
uh, on Broadway, William Sadler played uh, Sergeant Toomey. And that feels so much closer. Like the, the text of the character is not that he's a New York guy, but Walken is so is so intertwined with New York in my head. Like he he is super different from these guys from New York and New Jersey in terms of like his values and how he talks and acts. But he's got like the strong New York accent and the strong association with being like a wise guy or whatever. <laughs> I had similar feelings about the Walken character as you, Ben, but I think my my inability to get with him as being cast as Toomey was his youthfulness. Everyone was so youthful in this film that it made me forget that this was set in the 40s. Everyone looks 80s young and smooth. I didn't get the grizzled World War II vibes that I'm used to from a John Wayne film. But where, you know, Walken's the, 30 or four, 43 in this movie. Yeah, but he's a warlock. <laughs> <laughs> like, he, he exists out of time. <laughs> and I think I think he's emblematic of... Of why the film doesn't work in other ways, too. I think the film was miscast in the Broderick character, too. Really? Yeah. I mean, he Broderick originated these roles and on Broadway. He, they, these are these are the roles that made him famous. I, I, I take exception to that. I think that Ferris Bueller is the role that made him famous. Well, but I mean, this is where he, this is how he got into the this is how he got noticed by the by the New York theater scene. <laughs> Everyone is is too cute to feel like they are either dangerous or in danger, I think. War is very absent from this movie. It's very distant and uh at the at this point, I mean, 1945, like I'm sure the writing was on the wall. Well, you see it in that newsreel uh scene where they're in the movie theater. The end is nigh. I can only imagine what that would be like to be in boot camp and to be dreading the idea of going to war, but also feeling like, oh shit, if we don't get through this, we're gonna miss it. I think that was a, <laughs> I think that was a real common feeling among mm. people, young people in the late forties. Like, I don't want to miss it, or I did miss it. Like my uncle Jack was in the Navy and had gone through flight training, but then the war was over, and so they, you know, they they kind of came to him and said they went to to everybody at that point and said, we don't want you in the military. If you want a career in the military, you'd better really, really care about it. Otherwise, we'll muster you out right now. And to shoot Nazis on your own time. Yeah. <laughs> <And> <laughs> you know, think about that. Like, if you were if you were these guys, you, you spent your teen years watching the war. Yeah. Right. And, and yet you never feel that watching the movie. You never feel any kind of, you don't, you, the war is just like a, like a, um, a cloud. Dread is such a pervasive feeling in a war film, and the greatest feelings of dread you feel in this film are whether or not uh, Jerome is going to lose his virginity and be outed as a virgin, and whether or not uh, Epstein is a homosexual or not. Like, those are the most right. <laughs> acute emotional parts of the film. It's, it's not even war adjacent. It's not even on the same page. They play that game of if you knew you were gonna die, what what would you do? And that gets close to it, but I mean, also like, did did people really not know whether they were going to the Pacific or the European theater? 
I mean, was like, would you not know that by the time you're in boot camp? No, I, you wouldn't know it. I mean, these these guys were in army boot camp, and generally, the fighting in the Pacific was done uh, by the Marines. Yeah, I was. I, I thought that too. I, I was wondering how much army even was in the Pacific. There was army, and I think they were. I think at the time they were seeing that they were going to need. There was going to be a lot more army if we invaded Japan. Yeah. How would they get there? Do they have to swim? The army doesn't have boats. Wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) They'd flap their wings real hard. (laughs) But uh, no matter what branch of the service you joined, I think you didn't know where you were going until until the very last minute. That's still true to this day. We should test that out. Ben, why don't you join the army? I don't think I they think want that would me. be great for the podcast. It, I think it would too. That'd be the the that'd be a super smart publicity move. I would just have to phone in my uh, my reports. No, you could sit in your boot camp and be like, "I'm a pacifist." <laughs> I th- I'm sure that would go over super well with all the other 18 year olds. <laughs> <laughs> hey, fellow kids! I don't want to kill anybody. Yeah. Unlike uh, Jerome, you really would be collaborating with the drill instructor. (laughs) (laughs) Micromanaging him. Drill instructor's pet, Private Benjamin R. Harrison. (laughs) I mean, if if I had to go, I think that I I would do everything in my power to, to make my time easier and more enjoyable. So, yeah. I think that's totally off the mark. How deep in the shit would you say he was in? One thing that, about the era that this film is set in, but it's being written from, is that, uh, you know, he's he's writing about how the littler wars that we've had more recently seem bigger, but this was the big one. The I mean, the Vietnam War is long over at this point in history. What What would be, I guess, is it like, south america stuff that he's talking about or no i mean from from the perspective of a guy like that there had been three wars world war ii korea and vietnam i always forget about that middle one the korean (laughs) (laughs) and um it was uh set in burbank and (laughs) there was a lot of uh homophobic humor there um the uh there's a guy named Radar. I don't know that much about it. Radar, he was a good drummer. <laughs> um, the the curious thing about the nostalgia for World War II is that from between when this movie was made and now, there was at least 20 years of trying to really uh, portray World War II in a gritty and realistic fashion. Like starting with, with Saving Private Ryan, the... Uh, the way we started this very podcast, that movie tried to reintroduce the idea that World War II was not a sanitized uh, war where people danced the jitterbug and made the world safe for democracy. It, it tried to portray World War II in the cinematic language of the Vietnam War. Blood and post-traumatic stress disorder and shaky hands and people that are traumatized and all all that kind of um all the shatteredness that we associate with war movies now but in 1988 that hadn't happened yet we were starting to talk about vietnam that way but world war ii 
we still collectively understood it to be as he describes it, the good war where um, the uniforms were good. Everybody believed in what we were doing and the 95% of soldiers that never saw frontline action probably had a pretty, you know, fun time, I guess, or at least they, that's how they talked about it when they got home and nobody talked about the bad stuff. So from our standpoint, we look at world war two now and we think of it primarily, we think of it in, in this kind of descending order of like Holocaust. And then right after that, like Japanese atrocity, atomic bomb. And it, we, we go through all this like horror on our way to then thinking about the way it's been portrayed in saving private Ryan and these movies where it's like people's faces getting blown off and the, you know, um, yeah, there's not one face getting blown off in this movie at all. There's way more jitterbug than in saving private <laughs> Ryan. And there's not even any jitterbug in this movie. It's all like blue moon. <laughs> um, but, but it's very interesting to put yourself back in 1988 because you know, this, the World War II generation was still mostly alive when this movie came out. They were in their 70s. And I don't think they were the audience for this movie. I think probably the people that went to see this movie were Ferris, confused Ferris Bueller's Day Off fans. Who <laughs> <laughs> were like, what the? Jennifer Grey's note job was really extreme. I don't even recognize her. <laughs> There's no bread in this pack. But uh, I think that that generation and my dad's generation clung to the idea that World War II was the good war all the way to the end. I don't think they ever, I sat at the table with those old men and they never talked about their sadness. They thought of it as a great adventure and they talked about it that way. Did your dad and his friends come to resist and resent the changing tone of World War II film as it became darker toward the end of their lives? Did they... Did they choose not to see those movies? And if they did, uh, did they not like them for their lack of nostalgia? No, I don't think they, I, they did go to see those movies. I don't think they didn't like them. I think they thought they weren't realistic. Hmm. Um, like the combat, which stuff. is like the one, the one thing that people say about those latter day world war two films is like, Oh, so gritty and realistic. They rejected the realism. Yeah. They, they watching the combat stuff. I think they were, they recognized like, oh, that's a good shot yeah, or whatever. Like that was, <laughs> that must've been expensive to make. Right. You know, there's no crying in foxholes type of thing is, is there, was their attitude hmm. at least sitting around the table with them. In my experience, they felt like it was revisionist and that these were movies about their war that were being made by people who, that they were being made by hippies. Basically <laughs> generations reach a certain age where they look at the younger generation and go quit crying and and they felt, I think, like the that the conversation around war had become um, one where people just needed to, you know, pull their pants up. Mm. But they, you know, they would sit. I would. I went to this a monthly gathering of these old dudes at a Chinese restaurant in Tacoma, Washington, where they would sit around and argue about the war. But they were arguing about who was a bigger hero. Like ironically, they would never. They wouldn't sit and. They never talked about it, you know? They just talked about, like, you were you were behind the lines. You didn't even do... You know, I was out there fighting the Japanese. <laughs> you never even saw Japanese. What are you talking about? I was there on the beaches. But they were they were 
razzing each other. Yeah. You know, they what they actually saw, what they were, what they actually did. I'll never know. Yeah. And I, you know, I was there. I was there. I was there with them at the Chinese <laughs> restaurant. Thank you for your service. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You've talked a little bit before about how you, it really took a lot of time and thought for your father to come around on maybe the Vietnam War wasn't a great idea. Yeah. And uh, I was talking to my mother over the weekend. She listened to whatever episode that was, and she said uh, her dad, who was also a, a pilot in WW2, uh, was working for a defense contractor and actually was in Vietnam in 66 and observed it to be a total shit show. And he decided it was an unwinnable fuck up then and was like a an anti-war guy like super early on. And, uh, and it was like, he was like such an outlier among like everybody they knew, like a, you know, a former, a former pilot, in his defense, he was only sent there to take pictures. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, yeah. She vaguely, uh, she couldn't, she couldn't exactly put her finger on what he was there to do. But well, and look at his resume. Yeah, he's a, yeah. a Medal of Honor winner. Yeah, part half Irish, half Japanese, half Irish, half Black Irish. <laughs> That's a hell of a combo. Speaking of uh, speaking of race, there is quite a bit on. Uh, race and racism in this film and uh, that that scene was really interesting to me the the scene where the guy you know claims to be half black though he does not appear it just to kind of make a point Hennessy it turns out is gay in the army at a time when being gay in the army is a federal crime right and he is the voice of kind of justice and reason and as as Eugene points out he didn't even realize it until later that he'd been the he'd been the kid that had stood up against bullying, uh, stood up against against every uh, attack. He's the wokest guy in the outfit. He's very woke. He's and he's and he's a ginge too. The last the last group of people you can legitimately be racist against gingers. It's it. <laughs> yeah, is that true? <laughs> What's the sanctioning body that determines the I'm legitimate so many, racism versus unlegitimate? <laughs> we get so many letters, so many angry letters from yeah. from Dublin. Chris Bowman is going to quit listening. <laughs> Some of my best friends are gingers. I know. <laughs> Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks. Every week, myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes, and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. 
Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that uh, Hennessy found it so easy to admit his racial background uh, as cover for his sexual preference background. But, you know, he wasn't actually half black. He was he was baiting. Yeah. Yeah. He was baiting the Polish character. And as you know, in a film like this, the 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 Polish guy is always the worst guy. I I was shocked he was able to get into that bathroom with a door that was clearly labeled pull. <laughs> wow, you've become so Stockholm syndromed that you're the one making the Polish jokes now. Yeah. Uh, oh, he ben took them away really, from us. It's, ben has really it's done sad. a job on I'm you. trying to take away your power. <laughs> but like uh in you know, like it's it's also illegal for him to be black in the outfit at this time in the army. Right. So, right. I mean, the scene is about, all, you know, all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, also about his homosexuality. My dad's best friend uh, was a guy named Jack Tanner, who was a very light, light-skinned black guy. And in the army in 1942, uh, Tanner was not recognized as being African-American and was sent to boot camp uh, as a white guy. Went into the army in the South, looked around and realized that that's not where he wanted to be. And he went and said, I'm black. But the, he had he actually had to confront that possibility or he had to make that choice. And, and, and in making that decision in Southern boot camp, he suddenly was now not able to ride on the train or, you know, like he was, it was a segregated Right. south that he made that choice man that story really like exposes how unscientific the idea of race is like the <laughs> like 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 you can't really prove or disprove any of it to opt into the to that is um i mean at at that time it's pretty mind blowing yeah and especially since he was from Tacoma right he wasn't a guy that was coming out of a coming out of Georgia feeling really really uh already living in a segregated world like he was a he was the star of his high school baseball team but he didn't want to be mistaken for a white guy at that time hmm. i think uh, watching watching those scenes the 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 um the scenes around race in this movie from our with, with our contemporary eye it's hard to put yourself back in 1988 it's really hard to put yourself back in 1945 and it's interesting to look at how 1945 was being looked at from 1988 because I don't think those conversations would have happened that way in 45. I think that was the, that, um, those scenes were being played. That's the, that is 1988 wokeness is what we're seeing there. Um, 
and that would have played very differently to an, a 1988 audience than it did now. I think I think in 1988 that was that would have been regarded as a pretty progressive, pretty progressive scene and one where the audience left chewing on chewing on those thoughts and 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 maybe feeling good about themselves that they'd watched a difficult. Yeah, like wherein the mere mention of those issues counts as progressive instead of taking a side on any of them. Well, just that that it fe- it uh, featured so prominently in the story. Yeah. I take it that honor and integrity are traits not to be found anywhere in this company. I uh, finished watching this movie last night and watched uh, an episode of Cheers on Netflix just uh, randomly, and it happened to be about a like a, a ball player from you know like another retired ball player from the red sox uh putting out a book about how he was gay and sam malone is like uh is kind of grudgingly cool with it and then all of the regulars at the bar get worried that gay people are going to start coming into the bar so like you know george went and all those guys are like uh you know cowering in the corner as guys they think might be gay are you know (laughs) sitting on the other side of the bar having a drink Uh and uh, I, I think that's like a, like roughly around the same era as this. I'm sure season, it is. What was season one of Cheers? Oh, I guess '83 maybe. So yeah, like it. Um, I mean, and and they're being you know like the the episode is definitely is definitely making the uh, the George Wentz look ridiculous and and uh, and foolish, but. Um, it was it was very weird timing to just like compare that to this and how uh how little the needle had moved you know like the i mean 5 years later it's basically the same like you know the movie is is very subtly saying like it is unjust that this guy had to get picked up and go to jail and it would have been even more unjust if Epstein had because you know he's he didn't even do the gay thing. Yeah, it was. I mean, the the 80s were a time when the what we think of now as the concerns of wokeness, or rather the 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 language of it, like a lot of that language is getting written in the 80s, and it was getting getting written uh, in these kind of fits and starts. Like exactly how are we able to talk about this? It wasn't that long ago that you would have that the only mention of homosexuality in popular culture would have been like completely mocking but but by the late 70s you had three's company on tv which was playful about it now it was still played for laughs but there was an awful lot of you know there was a lot of camp to that show and there had always been camp on television i mean liberace was an enormous star in america in the 70s (laughs) but you couldn't but he would never publicly acknowledge that he was gay and so, yeah. you know, this kind of gradual outing of it, it wasn't, it wasn't that there weren't, that there wasn't always like bold faced gay culture in, in popular culture. It's just these conversations where that episode of Cheers or this movie, where they're starting to directly address the bigotry. Right. And, and acknowledge it as bigotry and not just like mor- morality being. Yeah. On right, the side that, of. that it's still being played for laughs if you want to, if you're looking for laughs, but 
in the end, the bigot is the goat. I mean, I wondered, does does this movie get made if it wasn't already a hit Tony Award winning play on Broadway? Because the like, I'm just picturing like 1988 movie executive like leafing through a script or looking at coverage or something and going like, so it's a movie about a bunch of guys going to boot camp and a bunch of the drama and intrigue is centered around whether one of the characters is gay. Like no man in America is going to pay money to see that movie. This is peak Woody Allen uh, in American cultural life too. So, you know, somebody, somebody greenlit this film because it was not, uh, I think probably it was a hit on Broadway also in this context of like, tell us more hilarious folk about ourselves and you know 80 percent of the time it's like great 20 percent of the time it's like oh that's sort of the same that's sort of actually i'd have rather watched a, a fourth rambo installation <laughs> well, maybe you, still whoa, you heard it here first folks <laughs> like on the it, list is this a war movie i think it is because it doesn't it doesn't exist outside the context of the war. The war is the is the backdrop. It's it's the raison d'etre for these characters being in this place at this time. If you took away the existence of the war, would this story still be able to be told? I think so. Like in a in a totally different place, like this could be But what is that place? All these people get stuck in an elevator? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean I mean, one of the great things about boot camp movies is it's they are the ultimate like stuck in an elevator movies. <laughs> this could be high school. It, almost beat for beat, this could be high school. This is the Wonder Years. I love that part of high school where you uh, you fail to turn in your English paper and the teacher makes everybody else in the class drop and give them 150 push-ups. The number of push-ups done in this movie is unbelievable. A lot of push-ups, especially since, and I, I you know, I don't want to be like, I don't want this to be my internet pedant moment, but I did not see <laughs> one single good push-up in this movie. Yeah, not one single decent push-up. Garbage chaps. I mean, yeah. the, the the sergeant can't do some solid push-ups? Those push-ups are sad. Where was Dale Dye to, to I know. tell him how military guys do real push-ups? Those were dancers' push-ups. <laughs> Uh, well, speaking of pedants, do you want to hear one that I selected from the uh, the goofs section of IMDb? Yes, Drop please. and give us a moment of pedantry, Ben. At the end of the movie, as a voiceover nears its finish, we see a shot of the train traveling across a very long bridge over a river. The shot, unfortunately, also reveals a modern track switching and communications box not found in 1945. <laughs> Spaced at regular intervals along the bridge's length. Oh, burn on you, filmmakers. <laughs> yeah, why didn't you tear down that bridge and build a more <laughs> In your temporarily face. appropriate one? Oh, that is some that's that's some train spotting pedantry. Yeah. My favorite kind. Yeah. I, I love the uh <laughs> the tone that the author of that goof takes uh the shot, unfortunately, also <laughs> unfortunately ruined forever. Yeah, the, this movie was flawless up until this point, but then the movie was unredeemably harmed by the re revelation that they shot it in 1987 or whatever. 
<laughs> that the opening shot of the movie where it starts with a cup fairly like close in medium shot on Broderick's face. Yeah. And then that slow zoom away from the train and then up, 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 up into the sky. I couldn't believe what a beautiful shot it was and hard to imagine that as recently as 1988, you could have a train, you could put together a train like that out of rolling stock that was sitting on a siding somewhere, fire up that locomotive, put it on like an active track somewhere in the South and get that shot. Like none of that stuff exists now. That locomotive is gone. Those passenger cars are gone. You could never, you could never replicate that. They've all been melted down and turned into like medical devices or something. And it's so different to see a movie now where the, where the steam locomotive is CGI. Mm -hmm. There's just no way to, to replicate that, that look. It was such a, such a beautiful, beautiful shot. I didn't even, it was so beautiful. It distracted me from noticing the switching boxes. It's almost a shame that they use that as the, as the shot they roll all the credits over because it's such a showstopper. It's so spectacular. The sun setting in the background and everything. And you've got text over half of yeah. the screen. It's too bad. Well, you know, back then you could just throw away a shot like that. Wonder how many times they did it. That is not an easy setup. Roll the train back to one. Yeah. Get it again. Get the get the helicopter back to one. Yeah. Most expensive shot in the film and they use it twice. That's getting value, right? That's right. <laughs> well, they they did two shots and they used both of them. No, the uh, the one at the credits is a is a mirror reversal because you can see the text on the train is mirrored. Oh, really? I don't know if it's exactly the same, but I can tell you that the text on the train is mirrored. Oh no! Kidding. So as to make a viewer believe, it made me believe that it was the same one. You come to Mama night. I wanted to talk about women in this movie. It's a rare friendly fire film that has a couple of female characters that get lines uh there's uh there's the hooker with the heart of gold character and the and the lady he falls in love with at the catholic dance yeah jerome really has a day he really does a day among days here it's it's a it's a banner day (laughs) it's a it starts like he's like nervous in the in the waiting room at the horror house and it's kind of revealed that like not only have many of these guys had very little to do with sex so far in their lives, but also like haven't even really like looked at sex. Like they, you know, <laughs> they're debating how many positions exist. Like these are dudes that haven't even seen porn. Well, he saw a dirty deck of cards, but like saw that it was. He didn't actually like <laughs> look, look through it. You know, <laughs> he he drew a conclusion based on his knowledge that there are fifty-two cards in a deck. <laughs> Carney is great in this scene, like as the as the person to whom Jerome uh, confides in about his uh, his apprehension and maybe the truth of his virginity. Like Carney doesn't use that against him or weaponize it. He's like, let's just go to the USO dance. I don't give a shit about this place. Yeah. And I thought that was a good moment for him, like where everyone if, had they been back in the barracks, just would have relentlessly bashed him for that moment. thought that was a good moment of friendship for them. Yeah. I also just, I really liked the Hooker character. I mean, she's like, she's such a a positive character in this film. She's 
she's really there for him. Like she's excited to to you know show him the ropes in a way that is uh, not judgmental or anything. Um, she's GGG. She's yeah. She's G-G-G. but also a hooker. She's good giving in game. These are Neil Simon's memoirs, so he's telling stories out of his own life, and he's a good enough writer that he can um, he can just tell what happened to him in World War II, and we all we all enter it into the canon. Um, and it, and watching those scenes, watching that particular day in Eugene's life, I really wondered how much of this is just what happened to Paul Simon or Paul. I'm sorry, Paul. <laughs> Neil Simon, what happened to him on the best day of his life, right? I mean, um, or whether he, you know, like he took the two best days of his life and put them together into one. Notice that Art Gardfunkel is conspicuously absent. <laughs> Good old Art Gardfunkel. But, you know, I I reflected on the fact that in my own life, I, I definitely was a kid and I have been a grown-up for a long time, but I never felt like I was a young man in the way that this scene portrays being a young man. When I lost my virginity, I didn't, the, the girl I lost my virginity to did not know that I was a virgin because I already felt because you were so great. Cause I was so amazing. First time. Wow. <laughs> because the audience stood up and applauded and I was like high five and everybody. She's like, how many times have you done this? That was fucking great. You're, you're just as masterful as I expected <laughs> from having watched you all these years covetously no i felt i did not feel at liberty to say that i was a virgin virgin. i i felt very much uh that i needed to present that i was experienced yeah you don't want to be vulnerable with somebody that you're sharing a moment like that with no certainly not in (laughs) 1980 whatever (laughs) and the thing is i don't know how that is for kids now like i don't know whether the the contemporary language of vulnerability is such that you can be 17, 18 years old and say, I'm still a virgin and everyone in your youth group applauds. I don't know what it's like now. Well, John, have you ever asked uh, anyone who's lost their virginity to you uh, what that's like? I don't think anybody ever has. Although, I mean, because no one's ever said, no one's ever said like, I'm a virgin. Way to take my insult seriously. (laughs) That that took the power completely out of it. (laughs) That's that's our new dynamic in this podcast. Good job. Try again. Yeah. <laughs> I've taken the virginity from a lot of gym socks, but they don't seem, you know, they're kind of indifferent about the whole thing. <laughs> Does that make it hard to judge this film, like, and to give your full strength to its judgment because it's so closely tied to someone's ostensibly true experiences? I don't know. I don't think so. Although, like, uh, for someone of his age and and by extension for someone of my age because although I'm not I'm two generations removed from greatest generation um, both the podcast and the actual generation <laughs> uh, I, I, I still grew up in a world dominated by these people and Ben you were born in 89 90, 93. 94 94 83 okay so you were born right around when that cheers episode aired yeah i was uh, i was a bouncing baby when george went was being a raging homophobe it turned your parents on so much <laughs> they just had to get it on but so you've lived your entire life within uh with with in a world where the language um is a, a product of this era of wrestling with these ideas and I was, 
I was raised in the in in a world where these where where I watched this conversation happening culturally uh, in real time, and it was startling to me as it would have been to my dad because because the language I was raised in was his world or his kid's world. Um, but this idea that the best day of your life would be in boot camp, losing your virginity to like a salty Southern prostitute and then meeting a, vir- a virginal Catholic school girl at a dance chaperoned by nuns whom you then squired around for a summer on leave without ever, you know, just giving chaste kisses and that this is the thing that characterizes the rest of your life. This is, this is your dawn, the dawn of your sexuality. Yeah. That whole idea existed before existed as I was entering into my young sexuality and I was measuring my experiences against these templates I wasn't in boot camp when I lost my virginity. I know you guys probably lost your virginity at camp, a different kind of camp. <laughs> uh, why, why camp? I lost my virginity like T minus three days from graduating from college. So, <laughs> Yes. In the teacher's lounge? <laughs> you had to uh, you had to take your pube tassel and move it to the other side of your penis. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the pube tassel with the little medallion that said I was graduating with honors. <laughs> Valedictorian. Oh, oh, oh! I really, I really don't like that, or that Adam is clasping his hands together and making the victory shake in the air over his own awful, awful pun. Uh, this was a real idea of how it went down, right? And it, and it's partly because people like Well, it's Neil like Simon baked and, into the culture, too. Like the, yeah. I mean, it's baked into the culture that, that the Neil Simon character finds himself in. Like, he leaves the whorehouse and goes to the the dance with the chased girls with the white gloves and like in in talking to that girl she says like you know they come up once a month and dance with soldier boys but they're not allowed to dance for too long it like they're kind of being brought up as a product themselves like absolutely Every, everybody in them and you know the 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 most touching line in the entire film when 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 she tells him where he can find her and then she she just dodges back in for a second and says Eugene, you didn't say one wrong thing this entire conversation. And she looks so pleased and he looks so pleased. Like that is the that is the best you could have hoped for. Right. The best either one of them could have hoped for. You didn't ruin this. <laughs> and that just it broke my heart to yeah. watch it because I was like, have I ever not ruined it? I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if I've ever not found a way to ruin it. Yeah, I've that part really made me sad too because like you can think that you had a situation go that well but until it's confirmed verbally right you have no idea yeah you're like man i totally did that great and she goes back to her friends is like oh my god what a tool this is the same character that like 15 minutes before was telling the prostitute i did it (laughs) (laughs) but you know you've got your you've got your virgin whore complex just laid right out for you there yeah and and that's a that is a massive that's a like a a pillar of how sexuality was integrated into our lives and 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 i think 
Neil Simon does it knowingly, but also, again, is this his real experience? And if so, and, and I think it is. I think he doesn't, it's not really a literary device. It's just what happened and, and, it, and, it, and it works um, because, he had, because he had a great day. It's also the worst day of his life because when he gets back to the barracks, he realizes that his, his journal has been taken out of his footlocker and has being, is being read publicly and laughed at and taken offense to. Yeah, although every writer secretly hopes that their journal gets taken out of their boot, uh, their footlocker and read aloud. Is that how you saw that scene? I mean, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure it's traumatic in the moment, but it's, it's instrumental in his, I mean, all of his voiceover reflection is all like, this made me a better writer, mm. right? He says, I realize then that people take writing as the truth and... You know, he's thinking about it, but just in terms of his audience. He also had nothing to lose there by having his journal read because uh, he started from a position of not being very well liked in that circumstance by the people in the barracks. It's not like he went from a position of of great friendship and love to one of disrespect. Like he went down a half a rung in standing based on what he wrote about the people around him. Oh no, I think the I think the opposite. He Oh really? Yeah, because because his power of observation was revealed as as a real power he had over them. They all cared what he thinks. Hmm. And when you are sitting scribbling in a notebook, people care about what you're writing. And that's a real I mean what we didn't see, what we never see here and we're and we're probably not going to watch um well, because it didn't happen, but we didn't see this same group of guys then in the trenches somewhere. Uh, during the Battle of the Bulge, to see whether th- these experiences bonded them with one another, or whether Broderick is wounded and screaming "Help me!" and somebody back behind the barbed wire is like, "Remember what you wrote about me? <laughs> Twist in the wind." I thought a lot about Full Metal Jacket when I watched this film because if you took the first half of Full Metal Jacket, elongated it, and made it totally stakes-free. I feel like that's what this film is. And I really, I didn't realize until the end how much I wanted that, that bookend that you're describing. Like yeah. they go to war, but it's totally off screen. And then they don't even get there before they're sent back. And that scene is like the tragic, that's the tragedy of what they've all gone through. Yeah. And that's what, that's where Neil Simon, if he were going to, if this were dramatized, he would have given these guys a third act in the war. If you're Neil, why don't you take any creative license and embellish this even a little bit? Because he's a domestic comedian. Well, tell us what's funny about that, Jerome. What's interesting to him is two lovers in a room, you know, an odd couple. And not he's none of these plays are meant to be totems of the era. They're all supposed to be small little, you know, they're they're coming out of the glass menagerie school and the long day's journey into night school of plays set in a single room, basically. Was this film more about the loss of a virginity and the falling in love, or was it about boot camp? Feels like the tent pole in the entire thing is that single day of virginity loss and falling in love. And even the, the power of the Toomey scene at the end was not so powerful as to overshadow that stuff. 
I mean, what we get at the very end is the um, the end of Animal House, the where are we now? Yeah. And, you know, and we get the, like, he's a high school baseball coach and a youth pastor and... and um, A guy and, that got obese by eating all the turkey bones. Right. And we get the validation of seeing that Epstein is ends up being the real warrior. He he ends up as as big a success as anybody. It's a movie that establishes Neil Simon's Wikipedia entry. <laughs> you know, like he then goes on to become we know that the character of Eugene then goes on to win 4000 Tony awards. It's a coming of age story and the war I mean I think the war just is coincident because this could have happened at Camp Winnemucca. This could have been like uh, meatballs. Right. It's a slightly more erudite meatballs. Erudite meatballs is is your new call sign, (laughs) John. (laughs) But the scene at the end with Toomey is like, it couldn't be that, you know. You don't have a guy waving a forty-five around at the... At summer camp, I mean, it's it's such a, a weird scene because he sort of like sets up this. I'm gonna like I'm gonna do a murder tonight to get out of being kicked out of the military, but then gives them a you know kind of like talks them through how they're gonna talk him out of it. Did you ever think death was on the table in that scene? No, there's nothing in this movie to suggest that anything meaningful is gonna happen. Right, <laughs> right, and yet. The way Walken plays it and the way that Broderick plays it, they play it like those are the stakes. It's interesting that they, in that circumstance, play it that way, but as the viewer, that never comes through. I'm going to say something weird. I love Christopher Walken, as we all do. He's uh, an enormous, like, actor, and he's been in so many great films and played so many great roles. I like the part where he says, I'm going to unscrew your head and shit down your neck. <laughs> you see this 45? <laughs> I hit it up my ass. <laughs> but I Now d- it's your turn, John. I don't do a Everyone, walking. Everyone's done one. I don't do a walking. Come on. No, I'm sorry. Oh. I'm sorry. I, I'm not going to. Oh. I'm not going to submit to peer pressure here. <laughs> Give the people what they want. No, I don't think they want it. Good for you, man. Good for you. Good for you. But Walken, to me, this is the weird thing. I do not, even though he's clearly extremely intimidating, I do not find him believably intimidating. Like, he never actually scares me in any movie he does, except for Deer Hunter, where he, where the whole movie is, I mean, that's legitimately freaky. He seems like he's joking. He never disappears in the role. Oh, yeah. And becomes... Uh, like this intense, scary person. He's always Christopher Walken first and his weird cadence and his, um, you know, and his his physicality. But I didn't, I couldn't, and the thing is I can never tell when he's kidding or when he's trying to be dangerous or when he's being romantic. Could you tell that he was drunk? Because I couldn't. No, not really. He's he's so Walken and Walken is so strange that... I, he never read as drunk to me at all. He just read to me as walking. Yeah, both he and Eugene say at one point, like, he was visibly drunk. I am clearly very drunk. And it's like, How? I yeah. don't know. Are you sweating <laughs> a little more? Like, Yeah. There's a bottle near you in the shot. <laughs> 
I mean, when you think about Sergeant Barnes coming into the foxhole with that bottle of Jack Daniels yeah. and saying, y'all know about killing? Like, he's drunk. Visibly scary drunk. Yeah. And scary. Right. Um, he's out of control. Right. And that scene where he's like, I'm going to, you know, like, uh, when he has that knife uh, to Charlie Sheen's face, you're like, sure, sure, he could he could kill him right now. But obviously, these are two different movies. These are two different movies, but they're scenes that are meant to be bringing out a similar fear, like anything could happen here. Like, this guy, this guy might hand this gun to Matthew Broderick and get and get killed. It's so much more about the gun than it is walking, too, because they do that split diopter shot a couple of times yeah. of both gun and Broderick's face in focus. Right. It's it's so rarely about the two shot of of Walken and Broderick together. It's it's gun. It's gun focused. And and yet it doesn't elicit that that tension that the scene yeah. in Platoon does. And partly I think it's because uh Broderick in the character of Neil Simon in the character of a of a New York Jew in a southern boot camp never stops wiseacring. Right? He's he never even in his panic, even feeling like he's about to die, he never stops cracking wise. And that is believable to me. I mean, in that situation at that age, I would have there I wouldn't have been able to deal with the situation other than by being a smart ass. Yeah. And he and as he's doing it, he knows that being a smart ass is not what he should be doing. That is going to jeopardize his life, but he can't not be a smart ass. Can't not. can't get away from his true nature. Yeah. I was just distracted in the scene by that chart of different kinds of hat on the wall. Go to put this on dot com. I bet you they have one for sale. <laughs> one of the things that I noticed was that the way that Eugene acted in that scene with Christopher Walken's character when his life was on the line was so similar to the way he acted in the in the prostitute's bedroom when his virginity was on the line oh like, just smart alecking yeah he was exactly the same person in both instances and i thought that was interesting yeah and true to his nature yeah true to him right it's also interesting neil simon does not ever take any cheap shots at the south really the 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 main characters that we meet that are southern are the two women and both of them are are uh, portrayed as like pretty wise, pretty educated. Their Southern accents aren't played for laughs. There's never a character in this movie that is the like ignorant bumpkin. Or if there is one, it's the, it's the Polish guy from New York. Right. And even, even those guys aren't, you know, they're not, nobody is, no, nobody's put under the bus as like the scapegoat for dummies. And that seems interesting. It seemed, and, and that again feels very, true to Neil Simon's personal experience and maybe his maybe his sophistication as a writer that he didn't succumb to that easy um, easy laugh because it would have been so easy to put one kind of you know Sheriff Cletus character in here somewhere it's classy to be more self-deprecating in in the retelling of this moment than it would be for him to take shots at at everyone right I like that choice Really curious about, you know, to contrast movies like this against movies now and to to think about a movie like this getting made now 
and how much more would be in it. And maybe some of that, maybe some of the more that was in it would make it a better film. But movies now don't let the audience, don't give the audience very much room to wonder about characters, wonder about their motivations, wonder about them because we're, we're spoon fed a lot more now. Is that that generational divide though? Like, is the, is it the same thing that's active in the, uh, you know, Chinese restaurant full of guys talking about the war, but not really talking about it? Oh, I always think of it more as a, a factor of movies being made by committee now. Hmm. Uh, just in they're trying to appeal to as broad an audience as possible so it's so you have to know what everybody's thinking yeah it's it's much harder to say like well everybody's going to get the reference to to the great gatsby here we don't have to we don't have to really bold face it or change it from a great gatsby reference to a reference to mickey mouse or something that is going to have a much broader you know base of understanding but also like this there are a lot of movies that aren't funny now, but it's not for lack of jokes. And this, <laughs> if this movie is not funny, it's largely because of a lack of jokes. Like the jokes are pretty deadpan. I, you could see there were some jokes that in the theater, in the, in a live theater would have been a big laugh because the theater theater audience is being pandered to. And in a movie you're like, huh? Yeah, it's the sort of comedy where you're like, oh, that's funny, yeah. instead of actually laughing. Yeah, good job, you know. Well, I also wondered, like, if you're in just, like, a movie theater, the Frank Rich review on the IMDb page about this is, like, extremely funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I was looking at the at the stage play one. Yeah, see? I think the play would have been really fun. Some of these lines would have been hilarious. The Frank Rich review of the movie is, oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I think the movie got pretty good reviews, but but I think Roger Ebert excoriated it. I mean, in, in a post-Platoon world, this is a, uh, this is a hard sell, right? <laughs> like as a, as, as a worthwhile statement on life in the military or anything. Yeah. Well, and even in 1988, you only see two black people in this whole movie, and it's those two kids playing in an alley. Jumping on a <laughs> mattress. Jumping on a mattress, right. And this movie is set in Mississippi. Yeah. Um, so there, there was a lot of, of material that it left untouched. Yeah. That probably Neil Simon did experience directly, and just it didn't make it, didn't make it into his... It wasn't a part of what he was trying to say, yeah. Right. Oh, don't even tell me they're shipping us out today. That's chow time. I've, I've been asking this question of our fans online. Yeah, I try to engage with the listeners online. Hashtag content, hashtag engagement. I, I like to have fun online and uh, to maintain our brand and my personal brand. This is all happening on 4chan, right? On 4chan. I don't yeah. know why the America Online Company keeps sending you <laughs> CD-ROMs. Well, and I, why you keep using them. Well, I use them, or, or, I, I hang them outside on the rafters to keep the hummingbirds away. Yeah. Uh, but, but I posed the question there, like, do, do the listeners want more involvement in determining what is and isn't a war movie? Mm. And uh, they do. And then I realized that uh, I didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> That's an amount of power that I hesitate to give anybody. 
That was a fairly predictable response, I think. <laughs> but but it does, I mean, we, we are confronted all the time in trying to define what our podcast is, um, confronted all the time with this question. Right. Is this a war movie? We have been, we've been pretty flexible. Yeah. I mean, you know, Ferris Bueller is not on the list, but I think this right. deserved to be. Okay, good. Although, should Ferris Bueller be on the list? It's kind of a war against going to school. It's a war against Principal, what's his name? Rooney. I don't think this is a war movie. This is a movie about what it's like to live in 1945. And uh, Ed Rooney is not the principal. I think he's the dean of students. Oh, vice principal. Vice principal Rooney. Yeah. Uh, Oh, so Adam's coming out against this as a war movie. Yeah. Shit, dog. Yeah. But how could we predict that, you know? You look at that's the cover. what this project is for. That's yeah. right. That's right. So is that a segment now? Was this a war movie? That's a dumb segment, <laughs> <Yeah>. Adam. <laughs> I didn't come up with that idea. Did you? Were you not listening when John set that whole piece up? Anyways, Adam, dumb idea. Let's move on. <laughs> what mean war movie, Rambo? <laughs> It's like it's like when you try to decide if a film was a war film, and once you make that decision doesn't really matter (laughs) every war film has its own customized rating and i come up with that rating myself it's based on something that catches my eye in every war film and in every war film that's a different thing makes it easy to judge a war film based on its own merits instead of uh, against other war films that's why we don't use a star system here that's star systems are are for fools this or is a, this or, is a classy operation we're we're doing here. Or for uh, for Captain Kirk. Mm. 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 <laughs> 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 hmm. Hmm. You will be. Oh God. <laughs> There's a. I think there's a part in this film that that serves the utility of the rating system maybe the best, and that occurs at the USO dance. There's that moment with uh, with Daisy and Eugene, and they're dancing, and we get we get a little bit of an introduction into how these USO dances work, and we get that introduction through someone else's discussion about these gloves. The gloves are there to prevent skin to skin contact, uh, which would if you were to get that, would be inappropriately titillating. You don't want that at one of these dances, especially mm. when the nuns are looking on. No, you're going to get your capillaries inflamed. Like those gloves, this film doesn't let you get too close to war, right? It never titillates you in a way that a war film often does. It's clever, but it doesn't have the power to hurt you in a way that a war film does, and in a way that I prefer a war film have that ability so I think it suffers for that reason, and I think it handicaps the ability to like the film in general or to appreciate it as a war film specifically. I mean, backing up a second, I bet it's a really satisfying play because I think one-man shows and autobiographical stories are often like satisfying plays. That's, I think, what the form is best used for. I don't think it was a great movie, and I don't think it was a great war film. Specifically, I'm going to give it one glove and one middle finger. Oh, <laughs> wow. I had no idea you felt you came into this like loaded for bear. Damn. 
You've kept your feelings kind of under wraps through this whole show. I wanted a little doom. It felt like there were no stakes at all. This felt like penny ante poker where it's just not fun without any stakes. And his virginity wasn't high enough stakes. The homosexuality of someone else in the barracks wasn't high enough stakes for our main character. Like to have that visited upon someone else we didn't really even know that well. Didn't really hit that hard. Uh, by the end, we don't. I don't feel like we've particularly been through a thing, especially because he didn't go to war ever. And and at the same time, it's hard to judge the thing again because it's someone's personal story. Like no, you can judge it. <laughs> and I have one glove and one middle finger. What about you guys? I'm gonna come in on a similar level uh, to you, Adam. I think that the character growth that I wanted to see in him is coming to some conclusion about the fights he picks and the stands he takes on other people's behalf. I mean, that's sort of set up as what it's going to be when he, you know, writes to himself that he feels bad about not taking Epstein's side or, or, you know, riding for justice early on in the film. And there's also this opportunity in early in the film to make that, instinct uh come into conflict with the idea of discipline the idea that they're here in boot camp to to be turned into something different and and all of this abuse that they're suffering is is to to make them disciplined and make them soldiers make them all the same in some way and having personal courage something that's perversely in in conflict with the goals that the military has for you uh would be a really interesting story to tell and i feel like they the the film has all of the pieces it needs in the first 20 or 30 minutes to tell that story and then kind of gets distracted with having sex with prostitutes and stuff so um yeah I, i'll give it uh i'll give it two gloves i thought that a lot of the performances were great um I really liked Broderick in this role. Uh, I I know you guys might disagree with that, but um, uh, but yeah, overall the the film is is not that great to me, and uh, you know it missed an opportunity to sink its teeth into something that's really interesting, something I'd like to see a film sink its teeth into, and and I think maybe like the first act of Full Metal Jacket does more and better with that with that contrast than uh, than this film does. A film which was about Stanley Kubrick's experience in boot camp. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, Neil Simon. You're a real comedian. Uh, I think that's a really cogent review, Ben. You're absolutely right. It sets up a lot of initial stakes. And by the end of the film, none of them were explored. No one has changed. The I mean, all, all walking once is for... Eugene to have become a soldier and Eugene just is wise as wisecracking as he was the day he walked in and everybody is exactly the same at the end which is which is an utter failure of a boot camp movie no one's born again hard <laughs> no one's anything he's given that chance at the end to fulfill the promise that uh, that Toomey gives him and he defers he gives yeah. it to Epstein yeah right or yeah he says like he he's he has a gun in his hand and he's like let's let him go 
I say let him go. <laughs> um, the movie failed for me in the first three minutes. I remember watching this movie and and being sort of in a warm bath of charm. The kind of sen- I, because I'm a Judeophile and a and a and particularly like the Jewish experience of New York and of America is a thing that I've I just really enjoy i enjoy the language i enjoy the the take and i remember watching this movie in alaska when all of that stuff uh when when that was still a very exotic language for me coming from the far west and i've obviously spent 30 years since then kind of um soaking in the palm olive of uh, American Jewish identity. Such, Is that why your hands are so soft? Mm, they're so soft. Is that what you fill your bathtub with, John? I do. It's half palm olive, half uh, half <laughs> witch hazel. It's a hell of a combination. But the tone of it in this is so tame. We don't really get the full impact of that voice either. And so, in that first scene, when they're walk, when the train has dropped them off, and they're walking along the tracks, and those guys are digging the ditch. Eugene makes a couple of wisecracks and I could tell that they that in the stage production those would have been big laughs they weren't laughs here and it set the tone for and I, I, I in watching the movie I felt oh this feeling of deflation like oh that's the whole reason for this movie it's a it's a comedy take on boot camp and if it isn't going to be funny then it isn't philosophical enough to justify itself you can be phil- you can be philosophical and have the humor take a back seat but there's not enough thoughtfulness here so i've i've found that it, I, I i was disappointed from the start and i feel like it's a two glove movie for me too which is tough because i'm a matthew broderick fan i'm a neil simon fan but uh and you know obviously like a mike nichols fan i mean everybody involved is our our culture creators i admire their work but this kind of is just too there's just no there there. Yeah, this film is made of good stuff. And I think Ben nailed the, the, the missed opportunities. Yeah. Well, did you guys have a guy? Who's your guy, John? Honestly, my guy is the locomotive. <laughs> is that the second time you've had a locomotive as a guy? <laughs> have I, did I have a locomotive as a guy before? I feel like you did. I mean, it's not uncommon for me to prefer the locomotive to any uh, any human character in the situation. <laughs> In real life as well as in film. You're always anthropomorphizing locomotives. <laughs> um, That's why his favorite re- subreddit is r slash John fucking locomotives. <laughs> hey, it's not sexual, you guys. <laughs> I mean, unless the locomotive goes into a tunnel. A lot of grease on those locomotives, John. Oh, in Von Ryan's Express, did I say that the locomotive was my... No, I had a guy in Von it was, Ryan's um, Express. Maybe it was the one, the Stalingrad movie... Uh, Enemy at the Gates, wasn't there like a train that you really wanted to fuck? Great train movie, yeah. Uh, that's yeah. true. A lot of trains. See, out I thought there. It, I so thought in trains. that film you wanted to fuck the gold filtered cigarette. <laughs> I do. I even do now. That that movie was very fuckable. Yeah. But no, the the locomotive is the only thing that sets this film in its time and place. Everything else, I mean, the uniforms aren't particularly compelling. They spend most of the movie in tank tops yeah there's nothing about the the camp there's nothing really i mean they do one long shot down a 
down a street, a Western street that's neither here nor there. It's no place. But that train on that bridge. Yeah, it's just a shame that it keeps going by those modern track switching and communication I boxes. I know, and I and I and I just I put blinders on to see past it because the train establishes for me the so much of a mood. I I mean, watching them on that train going across that bridge, I want to be on that train. I put myself on it. And that helps me get into the film and it helps me get out of the film. Um because it it's the realest thing about it. And I'm sad that I'm sad as a train spotter that 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 era you know I I I long for the that era of trains as much as I long for anything. <laughs> and I keep thinking that somehow uh, civilization will crumble just back far enough that steam <laughs> locomotives are important again, but not so far back that I have to actually like have pigs in the yard. <laughs> you just have to send James Howard Kunstler back in time and get him to fix the American rail situation before it goes to shit. Adam, who's who's your guy? Uh, I think it will surprise no one that uh, due to his uh, early occurring bathroom issues that Epstein <laughs> would be my guy. But I'm choosing him for reasons wholly separate from those. He is portrayed as the weakest of the group from Jump. But as the film progresses and concludes, he actually is the most obstinate and strong of the group and which is uh, something that I think a viewer like myself and the characters in the film would not have expected judging from the beginning. Uh, his is also the fantasy that is lived out at the end. Uh, the revenge that's visited upon Toomey we get to experience and maybe that's the way that he's most like me because he's a petty grudge keeping asshole <laughs> and uh that is my brand a weak gassy petty <laughs> grudge keeping asshole that is me that is me do a t <laughs> and for that reason epstein's my guy what about you ben uh those kids jumping on the mattress in the alley <laughs> that is you oh my god wow <laughs> It is completely you. oblivious to the sex that's happening. Just oblivious just to away. everything. Just yeah. like in an alley, in a rough part of town, yeah. jumping on a mattress. Particularly the one that was wearing shoes, because I feel like I'd be nervous to jump on that rusty metal with no shoes on. Right. But you even see a little bit of nervousness in those kids. <laughs> yeah. It's so you, Ben. The, they're my guy. <laughs> <laughs> You guys want to uh, help me select the next film we will watch? Yeah, I've got my, I've got my magic eight ball here, my magic one hundred ball. I guess we, we've been saying how many movies are on the list. It's sort of immaterial because it's more than a hundred. So we've randomized yeah. it, and uh, something within the range of one to one hundred will now be selected. Here we go. Well, that didn't roll right. I love how John's rolling the giant die against his keyboard, a keyboard that could stop the recording at any moment. <laughs> it is 52. 52. 
big movie from 1978, directed by Michael Cimino. It's a Vietnam film called The Deer Hunter. Oh, wow. We talk about this movie a lot. In fact, earlier today. It's like we conjured it. What if? How, do we have a rule that if we do three Christopher Walken films in a row, we can't do a fourth? Yeah, you have to, you have to be careful about too much back-to-back Walken. Wow, the deer hunter. This is going to be a tough watch. I would caution you, fellas, <laughs> not to do too many films about me. <laughs> I think uh, Walken was miscast in this film, but the fact that he found two syllables in the word ho is fucking remarkable. <laughs> wow, uh, real. Guys, I'm like you. I'm a rural guy from Pennsylvania. <laughs> Have, uh, ben, have you seen Deer Hunter? Uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've seen it projected. Um, very long, very boring. Adam, have you seen it? I'm still sad after seeing it. <laughs> yeah, to those uh, listening, uh, who playing along at home, uh, be prepared to watch an entire wedding happen in real time. <laughs> and it's not clear what, the, what role it plays in the movie. Also, there are some long hunting scenes. But it's an intense film we're about to watch. Also a necklace of ears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> a necklace of ears. Uh, if you like all of those things in your war film, <laughs> get ready. You don't come out of the deer hunter feeling really good about anything. Yeah. No. That happens. It's a, it's a three hour and four minute film. And, uh, oh my God. Rem- Do not watch this on Monday night, John. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I'm already hurting. <laughs> but we got to do it, right? It's not like it's a uh, seminal film. It's not one yeah. we can skip. So that will be next week on Friendly Fire. Uh, we'll leave it with Rob from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Fire's a Maximum Fun podcast that's hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte, and our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmer. If you'd like to support the show, please head on over to MaximumFun.org donate or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We've got a great Facebook discussion group and a subreddit and make sure that when you're using social media, to use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks, we'll see you next week. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.